You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. ISIS howls, we are in your home as they lose their own home. Intel says a new patch for Spectre and Meltdown is coming to fix instability problems. Look closely at URLs. IDN spoofing is out and about. Satori expands the reach of its botnets. New ransomware strains surface. SpriteCoin is no coin at all. And Sonic the Hedgehog fans, watch out. Three popular games may expose you to hacking. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Tuesday, January 23, 2018. ISIS is seeking to inspire lone wolf terrorists and frighten infidels with the slogan, We Are In Your Home. The slogan appears with an online picture of a jihadist wearing an ISIS-branded schmog, only his pixelated eyes visible, posing in front of a snowy shot of New York's Central Park. This sort of campaign can be expected to continue as the caliphate dwindles into its online diaspora. Intel tells users to disregard its recent Spectre patch. A new, less troublesome version is due out soon. The chip giant says it's figured out why machines based on its Broadwell and Haswell platforms reboot and become unstable after they've applied the patch Intel issued earlier this month for Meltdown and Spectre. So don't apply them. They'll have a new, better version out soon. Linux creator Linus Torvalds has been serving as a goad to better patching at Intel, whose approach to fixing the vulnerabilities he calls complete garbage. He's told his Linux kernel mailing list, quote, they do literally insane things. They do things that do not make sense, end quote. Intel feels a bit picked on, asking if everyone could be less shouty, but admits that Linus may have a point or two. The recent revelations of the Meltdown and Spectre vulnerabilities have led to a great deal of uncertainty as users continue to sort through their real-world practical implications. Chris Weber is a security strategist at SafeBreach, and he takes us through their efforts to make sense of the situation. The vast majority of computers, that's servers, that's end-user computers, are going to be affected by this vulnerability where either an application or a specific wrong user can get protected data uh, from places it shouldn't be able to get. So it is a little concerning in that way that it's so widespread, certainly. And we also know that some of the patches that were pushed to try to fix this uh, were pulled back as they were maybe rushed out a little hastily uh, and caused more harm than good in a lot of ways. And I think where we're at right now is that we're sort of uh, at the tipping point to see uh, whether we're going to be able to get out ahead of this or whether it's going to linger for quite some time. Now, one thing you all are doing there at SafeBreach is you're running simulations for these attacks. Can you take us through what that means and and what the benefit is there? Sure thing. So that's part of what SafeBreach does, you're exactly right, is we simulate attacks or exploits. We simulate ways to take advantage of vulnerabilities just like an attacker would. So in this case, though we haven't seen any real attacks out in the wild, 
we can create our own attacks that take advantage of this vulnerability. Written simulations that try to get simulated application data, simulated protected data uh, from the kernel space out of that machine to our simulators. Now, we're not trying to get any real data, not any real customer information. We make up the data, we put it in there, and we see if we can get it out. And in that way, you don't have to just patch and hope. You can actually patch and validate that the patches worked as you expected. And are there any uh, specific insights that you all have gained from running these simulations? On the right kind of machines, you know, Intel-based um, servers for sure running the right operating systems. The patch from Microsoft, for example, actually did help mitigate this, which early on there was some concern about. Since this is an architectural vulnerability, the industry wasn't sure if a software-only patch was really going to be helpful. Uh, we thought it was always going to have to be a combination of an operating system patch and certainly a firmware or microcode patch. But even the Microsoft patches seem to stop at least some of the vulnerabilities from being exploited uh, very well. Now, we've also seen in, in ensuing days that on the wrong kind of machines, uh, those can be locked up, prevented from booting with a patch that isn't uh, well executed. So hopefully we see the trends towards the working side just expand over the next few days. And, and how do you see this playing out? I mean, I think rightfully so, Meltdown and Spectre have taken you know, a great deal of attention. Uh, this is certainly something, the scale of which uh, we have not seen before, or at the very least, rarely see. But mm -hmm. I mean, long term, uh, is this going to be something that requires our continuing attention? Or could this even prove to be perhaps a distraction? I think that's a great question. It is extremely widespread. It's a really big impact. And it's at a very low level. So it's it's something that we all should focus on, we should understand, we should try to mitigate as best we can. But like any vulnerability or any patch, there's going to come a point where we reach diminishing returns. Some operating systems may never be patched. Certainly, there's lots of hardware out there that's no longer supported, or even some of the supported hardware might be a little arcane and might not be getting those firmware patches soon. And we could spin around and around on this as an industry for a long time being worried. But we have to remember defense in depth. If we have systems that we can't patch that might have this vulnerability, an attacker needs multiple phases in order to get to those systems. We need to make sure that we've got defenses in the network to stop them from getting there. We need to make sure that we segregate our networks so that lateral movement's harder. And certainly, if data is compromised, we need to try to make sure it never leaves our environments, never leaves those machines. So even if we can't fix the specter or the meltdown problem, we might be able to fix the overall exploitation problem by looking elsewhere in our environments. That's Chris Weber from SafeBreach. Security company RepNight says it found a collection of compromised credentials from top 500 law firms in the UK. They say that around 1 million email credentials are in the cache, a number which seems very high indeed. Some of the data came from the firms themselves, but much of the stolen information originated in third-party breaches. In this case, the risk is not so much direct identity theft, although of course that's a possibility too, but rather the use of the credentials for dangerously plausible social engineering campaigns. Farsight Security has issued a study of how internationalized domain names, IDNs, can use non-Latin characters from, say, the Greek or Cyrillic alphabets to craft sites that impersonate URLs that use the more familiar Roman characters. Spoofed sites are used for more persuasive phishing. Thus, a Cyrillic soft sign, for example, can be used to spell Facebook, which might fool the casual eyes of users normally alert to the URLs they follow. 
Other examples are easy to come up with. Companies whose sites have been impersonated in this way include Apple, Adobe, Amazon, Bank of America, Cisco, Coinbase, eBay, Bittrex, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, New York Times, Twitter, Walmart, Yahoo, Wikipedia, YouTube, and Yandex. IoT devices containing ARC chipsets are turning up in Satori botnets, which indicates that botnet controllers have significantly increased the number of Maverick devices they can rope into their herd. 32-bit ARC processors are power-efficient chips found in automobiles, including electronic steering controls and entertainment systems. Consumer goods like smart thermostats, personal fitness devices, and TV set-tops and also in industrial control systems. Arbor Networks, the firm warning of Satori's expansion, estimates that more than a billion and a half systems with ARC chips ship every year. An open-source ransomware project forms the basis of a new family of ransomware, DesuCrypt and its DeuceCrypt variant now being widely distributed in criminal markets. Researcher Michael Gillespie has developed a decryptor for infected files, so bravo, Gillespie, and let's hope that this sector of the criminal-to-criminal market remains largely frustrated. Security company Acronis warns that Paradise Ransomware, which saw a flurry of activity this past September, has resurfaced. It spreads in a commonplace but nonetheless dangerous way, as a malicious zip file distributed by spam email. There are a number of different cryptocurrencies in circulation, but at least one of them isn't what it appears to be. In fact, it's not a cryptocurrency at all. Researchers at security company Fortinet report that SpriteCoin is a bogus cryptocurrency that's nothing more than fishbait. It leads the unwary to ransomware. It also adds not just insult to injury, but further injury to injury by not only encrypting victims' files, but installing other malware that lingers after decryption. Once the marks cough up the ransom, payable only in the genuine cryptocurrency Monero, SpriteCoin's decryptor uploads a fresh, malicious executable and leaves malware behind on their machines that parses images, harvests certificates, and activates web cameras. So remember, there is no such thing as SpriteCoin. It's a scam whenever and wherever it appears. The Muscat securities market in Oman, a stock exchange with a $23 billion market cap, has closed a Telnet vulnerability. Telnet is always bad news nowadays and also changed the credentials on one of its routers. Those credentials were, of course, wait for it, username, admin, and password, admin. Finally, researchers at Prodeo Security Systems have found that three Sonic the Hedgehog games for Android, all available in the Google Play Store, are leaky. They could expose users' geolocation, and they could also expose them to man-in-the-middle attacks. The games are Sonic the Hedgehog Classic, Sonic Dash 2, Sonic Boom, and Sonic Dash. The information leaked includes mobile network information, service provider names, network types, OS version numbers, and device model and manufacturer. The problem seems to lie in the use of a third-party library, Android in Mobi D, which allows campaign monitoring, crash reporting, and software analysis. The library does so through 11 servers, three of which are insecure. Maybe you're not worried because you're more of the Crash Bandicoot type, but with more than 100 million downloads of these Sonic apps, come on, let's get secure and make America fast again. After all, we hear the federal government is open for business again, for now, anyway. Is that Anthem petition for City Escape still open? 
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Hi, Dave. So we got uh, some feedback from a listener. Okay. Uh, this is uh, from Nathaniel Yu. He's had a couple of ideas about security postures, and uh, I think they're worth discussing here. One of them is, uh, instead of teaching people not to click suspicious links, teach them never to click links in emails, or even better, disallow links altogether. This can be done without disrupting internal communication simply by placing links in a safe site or shared folder which the end user must authenticate into and then notifying them that the link exists via email. What do you think? There are uh, systems that you can get for your email now that will strip links out of, uh, out of the email message because uh, it's just a simple regular expression. So it's pretty easy to identify a link, if it's, particularly if it's in HTML. Anyway, because they all look kind of similar. Right. Um, they all have a, a regular syntax that must be matched in order, for, in order for the URL to work in the first place. Sure. So matching them is easy, and then taking them out is a simple find and replace. Um, I know that at the university, we have a system that if the link is identified as suspicious, it will replace that link in your email with a, um, a Hopkins web page that says, uh, that lets the user know, we think this link is malicious. You, should, you shouldn't click on these links. So sort of quarantines it. Yeah, it kind of quarantines make, it. And makes you it think out. twice. I, I do like the idea of completely removing all the links and making and telling people don't click on any of these links. I think that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. Um, and if you get an email from whoever you think it's coming from, uh, let's say it's uh, you're, you're doing business with Capital One or Wells Fargo, 
uh, and they uh, they you get an email from them that has a link in it. Never click on that link. Just go to your web browser and enter the um, the name of the website that you're going to, and or use your own links. Access the web page that way. Yeah, because even if you uh, you know mouse over it and it looks familiar enough, they they've gotten clever enough that they yep. can make it look familiar that's, enough. That's right. They started replacing you know buying up domains that look similar. They've replaced L's with ones, and there's a, a very small chance that you'll notice that the pixel on the L is is not aligned with the top of the L. Instead, it's dipped down one pixel right. on a serif, and it, it it's something as simple as that can can you know replacing a replacing a one with an L or an L with a one rather yeah. can uh, totally take you to it will will take you to a completely different website. Right, of course, yeah. So better safe than sorry. Yep. All right, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.